Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 5. My text is difficult for numerous reasons. Number one, my text is difficult because at the end of the day, I don't think that you will obey the text uh, because it's difficult and we don't like to get involved with other people's lives. We don't like to be that close. And so the idea of dying to self and refreshing or restoring someone who's caught in a fault is just something that we're not willing to do. See, it costs us to see a brother fall into a fault and then to get involved and restore them and help them out of that fault because you love them. I can hear the voices saying things like, I'm not meddling in anybody else's business and I don't want nobody meddling in my business, and let's just hope it all works out, because to get too close is something we're not interested in doing. The other reason my text is difficult, or at least one other reason, is because verse 4 is a problem, and it's like if you honestly read verse 4, you're like, uh, is this a misprint, or what happened here, because that can't be right. And so let's read the text, and we'll see if we can gain help tonight uh, from these things. It's a great text. I hope that we can gather something. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brothers, uh, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you, the you here is plural, in case you want to know, you who are spiritual should restore him In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you, singular, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's this difficulty a a bit. But let each one test his own work. So I do a self-examination. I test my own work. And then his reason to boast will be in the Lord. No. Will be in himself. So I test my work and then I can boast in myself and not in another or not in my neighbor. Do you see the problem there? I test myself and then I can boast in myself alone and not in another. Like, don't Paul say stuff like boast only in the Lord? What do you mean boast in yourself? And then verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. Verse 5 seems a little odd as well. It's like, what, we just switched back to bearing your own load. You just told me that I'm supposed to bear other people's burdens. Now you tell me to bear my own load. Do I bear his burden or do I bear my own burden? What am I supposed to do? Yeah, all that's there in the text. All right, uh, very, very short introduction and then just get right into the text, but (laughs) because I love Jonah. God's dealings with Jonah is a foundation for dealing with men caught in a fault. If you understand Jonah, that'd take too long to work that out, but we can give you another one. Jesus' relationship with Peter, Jesus' relationship with Peter is the classic example 
of how to bear the burden of a man who has a knack for sticking his foot in his mouth. Just watch how Jesus works with Peter over the years. Or if you want it from a church perspective, Paul's relationship with the church of Corinth is the model for bearing with a church of ongoing faults. Is anybody interested? On the back row, are y'all interested in anything I'm saying tonight? Anything? Anybody? I mean, it's, it's God's Word. I just want to give you the sense and the meaning of the text. If you're not interested, just go home. You know, you don't have to be here, right? I, I mean, I'm not paying you to be here. All right, here we go. So restoration is the motive. So know this, at least from our text tonight, restoration is the main verb, the main point of the passage. So restoration has to be the motive when dealing with those caught in a fault. Now, I'll give you a variety of translations just to get the sense of this first verse. If anyone is caught in a transgression, in any transgression, ESV, if a man be overtaken in a fault, King James, if a person be discovered in some sin, NET, uh, if a man is taken in any wrongdoing, Bible in basic English, uh, the Web Bible, even if a man is caught in some fault, this is this first line, and that may not answer our questions yet, but what's being presented here is there's a man who's a Christian, and he's been caught exposed in some fault, some wrongdoing. It's interesting that the Greek word's not the word for sin, hamartia. It's a different word, but it's some kind of fault or wrongdoing. It's a, it's a misstep. Okay. Let me give you a, just a couple definitions, and we'll come back together with this thing. But this idea of being caught, overtaken, discovered, taken, this, this idea, this Greek word, to come upon understanding something by surprise, have something overtake you. Let me give you an example. You didn't mean to. You got caught up listening to the radio, talking on the phone, and doing your eyelashes while driving down 199. And you topped the hill, and you were taken in a speeding trap. You didn't set out to go, I'm going to drive as fast as I can and see if I can get away with it. You, you, you just got caught up with all the things you had going on in your computerized cockpit, and you topped the hill, and you were caught at a fault. That's the idea here. This word for fault, trespass, uh, not the word for sin, but it's just somebody who makes a wrong step, somebody who loses their footing, uh, but it has the idea of violating moral standards. It can be offense, it can be wrongdoing, and you can translate it sin. But it seems to me the case that the reason why he's not just straight up calling it sin is because the sense of the sentence is it's not intentional. I'm going to do this thing and I don't care what God or the whole world says, I'm going to do it anyways. It's not that. It's the idea of a Christian man or woman living life and they just got caught in the moment, something came about, and all of a sudden they're like, how did I get in the mess that I'm in? But the heart of it is, it wasn't an intentional, rebellious, I don't care what God thinks, I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. It's not that. It's 
what happens to us? We get caught up at times, and then we are saddened by the reality of where we've got to, and we didn't know we got there so fast. Let me, maybe more clearly from William Hendrickson, he says, here's a person who, without deliberately planning to perform a wicked deed or embark on a devious course, he's just overtaken in some trespass. Now, we could do these long. I'm going to do these short. I'm going to assume you have biblical knowledge. I think it's a simple case of someone like David. I don't think David got up and said, you know what? I think I'll sleep with somebody's wife and then murder him. I don't think that was the plan. I didn't think that was his objective that day. But he was sitting there, and then he saw this woman, and one thing led to another, and he just made a wreck of the whole thing. He's at fault. He blew it. Or we could say Jonah. I don't think Jonah set out in the intention of like, I'm going to defy the living God, and I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, I don't care. It's just the pressure of having to be the prophet who took the gospel to the Gentiles. I don't want to be that guy. He, he rationalized it out. He reasoned it out. And then he woke up in a sense going, how did I create this disastrous mess for myself? All right, then there's obviously Peter. I don't think Peter obviously set out to say, I can't wait because at the right moment today, I'm going to say, I don't know the man. And that wasn't his plan, but the pressure of the day he got caught. I'll even be gracious and say, I don't think the church at Corinth said, hey, let's be the most divisive church on the planet. It just, this situation led to that situation, that situation led to that situation, and it just became a mess. And in a sense, Paul comes in and it's like, they're caught in all this disorder. Or we could think about maybe in Philippians, and you could look at Yudi and Syntyche. They did ministry together. They did gospel ministry together with Paul. I don't think they set out to say, hey, I don't like you, and you don't like me, and we don't like each other. Let's go out in the parking lot and settle it. And Paul has to say, look, you got to agree in the Lord. you got to agree in the Lord. We need to work this out. I think they got there through circumstances. It doesn't excuse it. I'm just telling you the text is they got caught in a fault. That's what he's issuing before us. The person in question is caught in this fault before they fully realize what they're doing. Anybody here ever been there? Ever got caught in a fault? You never planned to get there and you're like, how did I get in this mess? I know I've done it many times. So that's the problem of verse 1. Here's the priority of how we're to respond as men and women who call ourselves Christian. The you is plural. So when someone's caught in a fault, they get caught in this situation, the you, the plural, is supposed to do something. It's not like, well, the pastor should do it, the deacon should do it, the Sunday school teacher should do it, this person should do it. No, the youans should do it. The plural must do something, and the thing they must do plurally, is restore. This is a simple word, like the, in, in, in the New Testament where the nets are ripped and they mend the nets. You, you've got to mend them. You've got to fix the net where to hold fish. You've got to restore the person where they can live the Christian life. 
So the aim or the motive is how can I help this brother or sister who got caught in this fault, how can I help them to work through this situation in order that they can be everything that God has called them to be? At the end of 2 Corinthians, in a problematic church as I've already mentioned, you get to the end of that church and the last basically thing Paul says, 2 Corinthians and verse, chapter 13, verse 11, he, he gets to the end, and this is what he says. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. So you take all the problems of the church of Corinth, and you say, let's restore it all. Let's aim for restoration that we can repair and have a church that's healthy. You say, well, how, how, what's my attitude? I got the motive is to restore, but what's my attitude towards this person who's in this fault? What's my attitude to them? Oh, I know the answer. Gentleness. Gentleness, that's the answer. Gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed with my own self-importance. So I'm not too good to help you in your fault. I'm not overly impressed with me. Gently, I'm concerned more for you. Humility, courtesy, considerateness, meekness is the idea. That's what gentleness means here. So if you want it, I mean, I don't know how to make it more simple than this. You serve the brother, sister, who's caught in a fault in the way that you wish somebody would do for you when you're caught in a fault. So I've made a wreck of my life today, and I wish somebody would do this to help me through it. Okay, that you wish, do that for the other person who's caught in the fault. Okay. This uh, basic, I think, the problem is doing it. Because then you have to get involved, and you have to know that someone's caught in a fault. That's why I submit this, is you don't have to take this, but I think it's why a lot of people go to bigger churches. I go to church of 2000, I walk in the door, I sing my song, I listen to the sermon, I go home, nobody knows me, I don't know them, I get involved with nobody, and I never restore anybody. Because I just kind of can do my deal and I feel good. But when you get in a smaller church where there's some level of accountability, I'm like, I don't know if I want that. We're in America, we build fences and we keep our doors shut and we keep our blinds down and we want nobody looking in our business. So it becomes hard to restore someone because then sometimes it gets a little messy. All right, preventative though, there's a preventative here. You have a problem, you have the priority of restoring them but there's also a preventative in our text. This is for your good. This is all for your help. Here's the preventative. If I actively restore and help people with a spirit of gentleness, if I do that, it's a great preventative for me that I wouldn't fall into the same fault or something far worse. And you see it there in the text. He says, keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. I'll buzz through some translations again. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted, NASB. Consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted, King James. Pay close attention to yourself so that you are not tempted also, NET. Keep, keeping watch on yourself for fear 
that you yourself may be tested. Watch how this is working. When I seek to restore someone else and help them through the fault, I'm staying conscious of the reality that I can fall in the same fault. If I help David through this disastrous mess he's made with Bathsheba and her husband, at the same time, I'm being conscious that I could have done the exact same thing that David did, and I don't want to go through that. If you want a real example for my life, there's a billion reasons I hate alcohol, but the number one reason is, is because I had to bear with my middle brother David throughout his life, and I'm like, I'm trying to bear with him and help him through these things, and doing that, there's one thing I was convinced of, I don't want to fall in this same thing. I've seen all the destruction, I've seen all the pain, I've seen all of it, and I don't want none of it. And so in trying to help him with his fault, I was greatly guarded from falling in the same fault. And I'm thankful for that. He says, pay close attention. Watch out for yourself. You don't want to be enticed, led into improper behavior. I think generally Christians don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to sin big today. I'm going to defy God today. But there's little things that come that the devil uses, tweaks, and offers and puts before us. And sometimes he catches us when we're not thinking. And we need to, how do we stay aware? By restoring others. Then he says in verse 2, He says this, bear one another's burdens. Why would we do that? Well, in order that you can fulfill the law of Christ, to bear. It's interesting, this word is used 25 times, at least 25 times in the New Testament. And it's used for carrying something almost every time. You can carry a jar, you can carry a coffin, you can carry stones, you can carry money, you can carry a corpse, you can carry a yoke, you can carry a man, so you can carry Paul, there's a reference to carrying a woman. It, all of these have to do with carrying a load. So here in Galatians 6.2, it makes sense to understand it as carrying someone's burden for the purpose of lightening the difficulty and grief that the person is experiencing. I don't know, I hope you understand this, but I thought of uh, all kinds of ways to try to figure this out. But at the end of the day, I think the way I understand this best is my wife. So some of you men might agree and fall in the same boat. But I think back through 35 years of marriage, and I've been in some faults. Amen? I've done dumb things. And I got caught up. I've said things to my wife I wouldn't say to anybody in this church. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just being honest. That's marriage. I, I've done all of that. And my wife didn't shoot me. Right? I mean, she didn't kill me. She didn't divorce me. In our world, she had plenty of justifiable reasons for divorce in our world. But she, she bore with me through my faults. I mean, you can reverse it the other way as well, but that's the sense here in seeing somebody at their worst and loving them and helping carry that, them through that even when they mess up. I mean, here, if, if I'm, don't misunderstand this, if I'm in Jesus' place and Peter says what he says, we ain't friends no more, right? 
I don't know who Randall is. I don't know who you are. I'm, I'm going to kick you off Facebook. You don't have no access to me no more. That's what I would do. I'd, I'd disband him. We're not friends. But I, I see something like in a marriage, I see something in when there's real concern of bearing a burden and helping to lighten it for them. Great preventative of being caught in a fault is to serve others by helping them when they're caught in a fault. When you do so, you start feeling the pain they're going through, and you know you don't want to go through the same pain. Let me give you some examples, and these I'm just giving these in bullet statements, but think about restoration, think about bearing somebody else's burdens, and then think about this phrase, so that you would fulfill the law of Christ. This law, what is this law of Christ? Love. Love God, love neighbor. Think about these illustrations. Exactly how did Jesus deal with a sinful woman? The Gospel of Luke chapter 7. How did he deal with the penitent thief on the cross? How did he deal, well, how did he deal with Peter? Think about some of the things Peter said. Think about what he did. What was Jesus' reaction? What were his words? How, how did he work with this man? How, how did he deal with an invalid in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda? How did he deal with a woman taken in the very act of adultery with all the law condemning her to death? How did he deal with her? How, how did... It's almost like if you think about the prodigal son and you put Jesus in the sense of the father, how does the father deal with the prodigal? Here we, we're American. Oh, you squandered all the money and you did all this? Then you're done. You ain't welcome anymore. But you see the father running to him, embracing him, helping him through this fault. Paul reminds us, of the example of Christ, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 would be a classic, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and um, Romans 15, 3. There's several examples of how Christ, I mean, here, let's just make it real. How has Christ dealt with you when you have stumbled into a fault? How, how has he related to you? What has he said to you in his word? Hey, you get caught in a fault, I don't know you, you ain't coming to my home, you're going straight to hell, I don't care. You you don't see, you see patience, you see this long-suffering, you see this kindness, you see this comfort, you say, yeah, but you're talking sometimes about rebuke and correction and discipline. All of those things are for your restoration. Restoration includes a Nathan the prophet that says, you are the man identify and examine yourself, you've transgressed. That's part of restoration. But he told him that because he cared about his life. You can't restore somebody by overlooking the sin, but you can restore them by helping them to come out of the fault they found themselves to be in. By the way, and after that, with David, he was useful, right? I mean, you think about Peter after denying Christ. Well, could God use a man like that? Oh, he can be restored. 
I think he was greatly restored and did a significant job in the book of Acts. And I think even greater, he wrote First and Second Peter, which has been just like a wonderful thing for my life. I'm glad there was restoration and not just condemnation. Okay, if that's still not clicking, let me help you. I'll, I'll bring it down to a different illustration. <clears throat> Seeing a beaver, John, you can relate up there in your trapping days. Seeing a beaver in a trap tells the other beavers, be careful or you'll fall in the same trap. Right? <laughs> Helping the beaver out of the trap will teach you you don't want to go through that pain. Got it? Another example. Bearing and helping someone through divorce. Drunkenness. Debt. I got caught in a trap one time with a stereo system for $750 out of stupidity and carnal desire. True story. Peter Pons restored me. And Peter Pons helped carry the burden. And he's dead now, but I'll never forget. And I learned a great lesson there. And I'm thankful that I could see something like that. And so debt, worldliness, Sabbath breaking, idolatry, etc., etc., can be escaped by paying close attention to yourself and by restoring others when they're caught in these faults. Example number three, personally, bearing the burden, burdens of others for 20 plus years has helped me to be warned of faults and of how to love others as Christ has loved me. There's a difficulty there because you try to restore someone and you try to help bear the burden and they won't be restored and they won't be responsible to take up any responsibility for their own burden and you put all the labor in and they leave and they don't care. You do that once, and it hurts. You do that twice, it hurts a lot more. You do it a hundred times, and you start becoming numb. And then, somebody else falls into a fault, and this is your thought. I don't care. I've done that, I've been down that road, and I'm not wasting my time. Hold on. The text says... The word restore is a command by God that whether it's failed a thousand times over, if your brother, your sister's caught in a fault, restore them and bear their burden, lest you too fall in the same thing or something even worse. All right, verse 3, reflection of the man, verse 3. You see it there, it's short. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Self-inflation. Self-inflation. Now watch the connection of the text. Look at it there in your Bible. You have in verse 6-1, pay close attention to yourself. And then in 6-3, if you think you're something when you're nothing. Or in 6-2, bear one another's burdens. 6-3, if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing. 
if you don't pay close attention to yourself and you don't bear other people's burdens, here's the conclusion. You will think you are something when you are nothing. But when you keep watching yourself and you keep bearing other people's burdens in that process, you realize how little you actually are. Now, when you disobey a command of God, this command to restore and to bear burdens, when you disobey this type of command, you come to false conclusions about yourself. Watch. I'd never do that. (laughs) There ain't no way I'd do that, I'd do that, or I would do that. You have no idea what you're capable of. We have to be very cautious. If we're not paying close attention and we're not bearing other people's burdens, you're going to find yourself in a fault you never imagined yourself to be in. Not restoring others, or yeah, not restoring others and not bearing the burdens of others is the heart of self inflation. You know why you've never bared somebody's burden? You know why you've never restored somebody else? Because you think too much of yourself. And you're too good to help somebody who's in need. It's disastrous. It happens in Christianity all the time. You become too good to help those who are less than you, at least in your self-estimation. Now, I know it's not the exact parallel, but just for the example of it, I think about the story of the Good Samaritan. It gives this imagery of what it means to bear somebody else's burden. And this, this guy who's on the side of the road, I don't think he was in a fault. He fell down. It's just an illustration. But it's the end of the story that gets me. He picks him up. He bandages him. He cares for him. He gives him a place to say. He pays his bill and says, if anything else is owed when I come back, I'll pay that too. Just the sense and idea of that in bearing someone else's burden. Whatever I can do to help you through this, I commit to do that no matter what it costs me. And if it goes over this amount, I'll figure out how to pay that too. That's the heart of Christianity. We don't, if we have this self-inflation, though, and we're unwilling, we say, I'm not doing that. I don't care what you preach. I don't care how you preach it. I am not getting involved in anybody else's life. The difficulty here is it puts you in a position of blindness. What type of blindness? Self-deception. Give me an example of self-deception. I'll give you them in chronological order in the Bible. It's not all of them, but Goliath. Just bring anybody out here. Bring anybody you got. Just bring them out here and we'll have a fight. Self-deception. He forgot that he might have to deal with somebody who belongs to the living God. Think about Ben-Hadad in 1 Kings. He says all these pompous things. You follow it all out. It does not end well. Think about, here's one, Haman. Man, the king and, 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 and the queen, they, they invited me and me and the king only. She invited us only and nobody else. She must want to do great things for me. Get ready to get a rope around your neck, buddy. And he, he thought it was all about him. He was self-deceived. Think about Sennacherib. Sennacherib, he, he come down there to the walls of Jerusalem and say, don't you dare listen to Hezekiah, uh, trusting God, trusting God. Where's the God of this nation, this nation, this nation, this nation, and this nation? We wiped all of them out, and we're going to wipe you out too. We can beat anybody. 
Woke up one morning, there's 185,000 people dead. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Look at my kingdom. I'm the one in charge. Look what I built with my own hands. And now he's out here eating grass like an ox. Self-deception. Think of the Edomites and Obadiah. Think of the overconfidence of Peter. I will never deny you. If all others deny you, not me, buddy. Overconfidence. Think of the Pharisee. I thank God I'm not like this sap over here. That sap over there went home justified. The Pharisee did not. Self-deception. It's good to develop a small view of yourself. At the heart of self-deception is the thought that you're always right. Are you one of those always right? Overconfidence in self is a dangerous way to live. Overconfidence, being always right, in actuality, most of the time, hear it said, you're usually wrong. Overconfidence in doctrines is exemplified in how other people are treated. Holding doctrines with overconfidence belittles those who do not agree with you, and you treat them that way because they don't agree with you. Overconfidence is a terrible way to live. The way to detect self-deception, pay close attention to yourself and restore other people. Bear one another's burdens and mirror the law of Christ. It's the best way for self-deception. Submit to Scripture. Listen to the voices that have spoken for thousands of years. And remain, here's the key. You ready? Help you with self-deception. Remain teachable till you die. You can learn from three-year-olds in this church. You can learn from 90-year-olds in this church. Don't ever get to the point that you're so smart nobody can teach you. Always remain teachable. Self-deception can be solved very good in the local church. You think you're the greatest preacher in the world, you think you can do anything, then go pastor a local church for 20, 30, 40 years and call me after you're done. It's dangerous. Self-deception is dangerous. Spend more time thinking upon Christ and His Word than upon yourself. The higher your view of Christ, the lower your view of self. All right, and then in verses 4 and 5, and lastly, resolved in this mission He says in verse 4, this is the verse that was somewhat of a problem, but let each one of us test his own work. Then he has reason to boast in himself alone and not in another, for each one will have to bear his own load. It's a common word, dokimazo, to test the work, to examine something, to determine something to be genuine. I'm going to examine myself, Okay. How did I arrive at the point that I'm at today? How did I get here? How, what am I doing? How, how did this happen? What, what are the reasons for my accomplishments? Why, why do I do the ministry that I do? And let, I examine myself. What, what is my motive here? What's my motive for evangelism? What's my motive for missions? What's my motive for preaching? What's my motive for church service? What's the motive for my ethics, the way I live? Uh, What's driving all of this? 
What's your motive in this? Test your work. Do you do what you do with the sole reason that you love Christ and you want to honor Christ? Here's a fact check. Here's what we do. Okay, I'm going to share the gospel. Wait, turn on the video recorder. Really? That's your motive? I I, got to have this recorded where everybody can see. Do I do evangelism where other people will see how great I am? Do I preach in order that people think highly of me? Do I preach this or that in order to get an amen or get this or to increase tithes or offerings? What's the motive? Here's what Paul is saying in this thing. He's tested himself. He's laid his life out and he's done what he's done for the glory of Christ alone. That's his motive. And so he has reason to boast. In what? A clean conscience. A clean conscience. You say, why do you say it that way? Because the people at issue can't say it. Who are the people at issue? The troublemakers of Galatia. Why are they trying to demand everybody get circumcised? Why are they causing a division in the church? Why are they separating people from Paul and saying, listen to us and not listen to him? Why are they doing this? Because their motives are impure. And with an impure motive, they have a bad conscience. And their conscience is screaming out against them. Paul's conscience is not screaming out against him. Because here's a man who's given his life to serve Christ. What a blessed place to be to live Christianity wherever you are simply because of Christ and His glory. Clean conscience. Truthful confidence. Boasting. It all has to do with having this clean conscience before God. Here's a man that's done everything in faithfulness to God, submission to the Word of God, and note... He has no dependence upon man, nor does he have regard for man's opinions like the troublemakers had. It's a great place to be if you can be there. Let me give you Luther's observation because it's priceless. Here's what Luther says, quote, Let him say with a constant mind, I began not to teach the gospel to the end that the world should magnify me. I I started this ministry of the gospel not that the world would magnify me. Therefore, I will not shrink from that which I have begun. If the world hate, if the world slander, if the world persecute me, I'm not going to stop. Such a one teaches the word and attends his office faithfully without any worldly respect, that is, without any regard for the glory of man, without any regard for glory uh, of glory or fame, without the strength, the wisdom, or authority of any man. He leans not to the praise of other men. This is what I preach if there's 10,000 people here tonight. And it's what I'd preach if there's two, right? I'm, you, the, the sense for you is you're doing what you do in a full abandoned submission to the Lord Jesus Christ no matter how anybody else responds. 
Many people live their whole life based on what others think and what others say. Here's a man with a clean conscience boasting in this clean conscience of I've been honest and submissive unto the Lord. No concern with whether the world praises him or not, but he can praise himself that he has a clear conscience before God. That's the only way to do ministry. It's the only way to be Christian. But on the other hand, men who live for the boast of others, here's what they do. They boast if other people like them. They boast if they have a lot of followers. They boast if people praise their ministry. They boast if people like them and give them gifts. They only last as long as the boasting comes toward them. But the moment it is gone, they are then filled with condemnation for those who wouldn't boast in them. Well, to keep it country, men who live like this are like many of the farm tanks around here. When the water stops flowing, they're as dry as West Texas desert because they have nothing real that produces within itself. Paul over here, his pond's always full because he has this stream of a clean conscience. These guys dry up when the boasting stops running in their direction. Paul, on the other hand, as we know, 2 Corinthians 1.12, for our boast is this. 2 Corinthians 1.12, our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world. How'd they behave? With simplicity. With simplicity, godly sincerity. Paul was just simple and he was sincere to God. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely towards you. That's what he says to the Corinthians. So lastly, we get to verse 5, and it's very brief, very short verse. After all of this restoring and bearing others' burdens and doing things with the right motive, great model of Christianity, because you've got to bear your own load. Right? That's what it says. It, you, have to, you just preached for 30 minutes that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens, and now you're going to stop and say, yeah, bear your own burden. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm going to say. It's right to bear somebody else's burden. But it does not remove you from bearing your own burden. I want somebody to help me through my fault. You know what? i got to help myself through this fault. David had to repent himself. David had to seek God himself. And David had to worship himself. And when, baby, when the baby died, David had to go to the house of God and worship there. He had to do those things on his own responsibility. Nathan come along to help, but David has responsibility as well. Here's what happens when we get this thing out of balance. You cannot spend your life... a complaining that no one cares. You can't spend your life saying, nobody will help me, spitting out accusations. As a guy told me this week, yeah, I was riding my bicycle down the road, and this guy cussed me out, and he said all this stuff, and then he pulled into the church. He's like, he better hurry up and get it. I'm like, you're going to spend your whole life saying the church isn't helping you when you've done nothing for yourself. You must take responsibility for your own situation. And years ago, an old pianist here 
It's a Christian counselor. A lady came in and sat down with her to have counseling, and this particular lady had a laundry list of faults that she had been in, a laundry list of all kinds of things. And our pianist, who was a counselor, listened very attentively and compassionately, in a sense, bearing the other person's burden, trying to help her. And when she got through with all of the things, our pianist said to her, what is your responsibility in all this? That lady blew up and left. I've never seen her again. She was mad. The audacity to think that I have a responsibility in my own fault. Right! For each one will have to bear his own load. Recognize you have a responsibility for your fault, but also be humble enough to receive help from those who want to help you through your fault. That's the way church ought to be. Many want to carry the burden, but they're unwilling to carry their own burden. Christianity is two parties carrying the same load. It's lighter that way. Simply had a box. I grabbed one side. My daughter Samantha was over there, and I just looked at her like, you know, the dad look. Hello, you know, right? I got one side. Think it through, kid. Do you want me to pick up the other side? Duh! And she picked it up. You know, it's a lot easier to carry with two people. I'd carried it out there by myself, and it was kind of awkward. But when two people love enough and care enough to bear the same burden, it's a lot lighter and a lot more easy to manage. And so I say to you, I think I've experienced that a lot in my marriage. I hope you have, and I hope you have somebody that's cared enough to help you when you've been in a fault. The troublemakers of Galatia had all of this wrong that we've preached tonight. Their attitude was never to restore, only to condemn. Secondly, they had a corrupt and inflated view of themselves. And third, their main concern was what people thought of them, and they were blind to their own faults. All right, let's pray. Father, this is a glorious text. It's very good. I thank you for all the men and the women. Thank you for family. Thank you for church family who have, over the years, helped me to work through faults I have found myself in. What a great privilege to know that someone would care enough to help me in some of the messes that I've made of my own life. And I pray I would do a good job as a pastor of trying to bear others' burdens. I pray that we as Christians would genuinely care enough to bear others' burdens. And I pray, God, that we would do what we do for the glory of Christ for the fame of his name, and we would be able to boast in a clean conscience. And at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that each one of us would take responsibility for our own actions. And we pray these things tonight by your Spirit in Christ's name. Amen.